Station 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the Daybook Podcast. I'm Peter Hartlob, and John McMurtry is here, book editor John McMurtry. He interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson, who came to the Chronicle and has a new book out. Yes, it's called Accessory to War, the Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. Heavy title, and it's not quite as light as last year's bestseller, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, but this is not a dense book in a in a bad way. He's done a lot of research. There's a lot of research in there, but it's full of a lot of fascinating historical details. I think that the general reader will love uh, that goes back centuries. Yeah, and I've got to say his voice is fantastic. I was so glad you asked him to read for us. Let's listen to a little bit of that right now. Are nowhere to be found. All they see are blue oceans, green and tan land masses and the white of cloud tops and glaciers. One world, indivisible. Humanity's only home thus far. Some of us may be waiting for the chance to colonize Mars. Not happening tomorrow. In the meantime, maybe we could try pretending we're astronauts. Because, in fact, considered in terms of the galaxy, not to mention the universe, we are. John, you've interviewed him before. Quite a storyteller. Yes, I think we could have been here for a few hours and that would have been okay with me. And uh, I think his grasp of culture as well as science is amazing. He, we were just talking about the Yankees on the way out of here. <laughs> he grew up in the Bronx, so he's not a huge baseball fan, but he, he's well-versed in many things. He's a generalist, which I love about him. Well, it's an excellent interview. Neil deGrasse Tyson Day on Datebook Podcast. Thanks for listening. Dr. Tyson, welcome back. Welcome back to town. Thank, thanks for having me. Please well, call me Neil. Okay, Neil. Oh, okay, Dr. Neil. Dr. Neil. <laughs> no. <laughs> welcome to the Datebook podcast. Thank you. You were kind enough to stop by our offices last year when we talked about your bestseller, Astrophysics. You were kind enough to receive me mm. that. Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. And that book sold more than a million copies. It's still on the bestseller list. Yeah. That's crazy. So those are... In a a sea of Trump books that... Oof. It's like a cork bobbing on these tidewaters that rise and fall. Nicely put. But it's still there, even when the tide (laughs) goes out and comes back in. So those are paltry numbers in galactic terms, but... Very respectable. Yeah, I'll in come back when I sell books. a billion copies. There we go. Yeah, that's <laughs> this one. So now you're here. It's uh, been just what? It's taken a year and a half or so. Yeah. The, the Earth has gone around the sun, I think, a little more than once or one, one and a half times. And you're back with this uh, new book, Accessory to War The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. And, uh, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry was slim, a little over 200 pages. Barely, yeah. And uh, Accessory to War is a little more meaty. It clocks in at a whopping 576 pages. Granted, yeah, it's, I if, think... Yeah, it's, it's, it's if you're not in a hurry. 
<laughs> okay. Astrophysics for those not in a hurry. Yes. Not, it's definitely not in a hurry. So 200, I think, of those pages, too, so we don't scare away people, are notes. Yeah, but, they can yeah also I thought it was like 150, but maybe it, it and, and it's smaller mm. type. So it's just, the notes are, there's some people who like notes. Actually, I, I, think, don't, I don't happen to be one of them. <laughs> especially <laughs> in the production process? <laughs> no, but there are places where there are details that the truly curious person might want to explore. Certainly. But that would weigh down the running prose mm-hmm. in the text. Mm-hmm. So. so this new book is no less eye-opening, and if anything, it's more urgent, I, f- I find. It's a sweeping account of the all-too-cozy relationship between scientists and the military and how dangerous that pairing has been and can be. Is this a book you've wanted to write for some time, or what are its origins? The, the origins uh, begin in 2001, early 2001, when... I got a phone call from the White House asking if I would uh, be George Bush's, one of his six selections to a 12-member commission to study the future of the United States aerospace industry. And while I know about the aerospace industry, I didn't count myself as an expert enough right. to serve on a commission to study it. And I said, you sure you got the right guy? So we know who you are. We've read your writings. We know. I said, okay. And so I ultimately agreed to that. And yeah. then 12 of us, it was quite the dynamic commission. 12 mm. of us, six appointed by the president, six by Congress, mm. and three by the House and three by the Senate. Mm. Two of each of those three by the majority leaders, one by the minority leaders. So it's very politically representative who right. got, who's been elected into, uh, as a White House commission, the White House is heavily represented, but Congress is represented as well. And in this commission, there was like he- captains of industry, also captains of labor. Mm. The head of the Aerospace Machinist Union was mm-hmm. on this panel, mm-hmm. on this commission. So we had astronauts, we've had former members of Congress, of left and right, leaning, so it, repre- it, it recognized that there was a challenge before us at the time, that the American aerospace industry was on hard times, the, it had lost a half a million jobs in mm. the previous 10 or 15 years, there was a consolidation of industries that used to have dozens, scores of aerospace companies that had either gone out of business, consolidated, bought out, uh, merged, and now we were down to five. Hmm. This is why so many of them have hyphenated names. Right. Lockheed Martin, yes. Northrop Grumman, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so the, the question was, if we lose this industry, what impact, because we were getting competition from Airbus in Europe and Embraer and Canada Air, um, if we lose this industry, what effect would that have? What impact would that have on our commerce you know, you order something from Amazon, it's on your doorstep the next morning. Right. An airplane brought it there, uh-huh. okay? And, or brought it to the nearest airport <laughs> before uh-huh. it landed there. Uh, commerce, transportation, security, okay? The, the Air Force or any planes that we use in our military. Point is, uh, this story doesn't have to be longer than it needs to be. Let me just say that in those conversations, I was treated to intelligent, educated people across the entire political spectrum. Mm. And so often in modern times, one side of the spectrum or the other is caricatured as being dumb or stupid or uninformed Mm. or Mm. what have you. And this was the opposite. It was intelligent people with a common goal. Mm -hmm. But of course they come from their own perspective. Part of the 
deliberations were how do we accommodate all of these needs while still serving the needs of the country as a number one priority. Right. And I said to myself, you know, this, meetings like this must have gone on in all countries, all powerful countries, throughout all of time. Right. And then I realized here I am commenting on the, on the science of this, mm-hmm. on the astrophysics of this, of the space of this, and I thought, surely there was like the astrophysicist in all of these meetings <laughs> for, throughout time. So then I said, I wonder if there's a book in that. So I started researching that, and by 2005 I said, yes, there is, and it goes way back. And then I calculated how long it would take me to research it and write it, and I got a thousand years. Hmm. So that's, I don't live that long. <laughs> so I found a co-author. Not, not yet. Not, not yet, exactly. Found a co-author to help, uh, Office Lang, a longtime editor. I was going to uh, editor. props. Yeah. yeah, exactly. A longtime editor of mine for essays I had written for Natural History Magazine. And so we know how to work together. She knows what I... The difference between what I say and what I mean and how to mm. bridge that gap. Mm. So it became a very fertile collaboration uh, to produce this book, but it was still 13 years in the making. Mm. I love that. Uh, oh, oh, by the way, people say, you know, did you time this to come out with Trump's Space Force? Right. It was like, what? <laughs> this book was 13 years. <laughs> it came Wrote out it whenever week. we finished it. Wrote it last weekend. <laughs> Uh, about Lang, uh, she's. I love that she's an art historian. Yes, she's by an art historian. And, yeah, and it made me turned science enthusiast, still art historian. Yeah, it made me happy to know that there's something of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's example out there that someone today can be well versed in the arts and sciences. Right, mm-hmm, that, that's mm-hmm. going to be quite rare. And by the way, it was she who brought to my attention the fact that uh, we all know how the telescope, or you can easily figure how the telescope. Mm-hmm transformed military conflict. Hmm. You could see your enemy long before they can see you, hmm. estimate their strengths, bolster your garrisons. You, you know things. It's, a, it's, a, it's an intelligence-gathering instrument mm-hmm. that had transformed warfare right. ever since it came out. But it was, it was perfected by an astronomer. It wasn't invented by him, but he perfected mm-hmm. it, Ga- mm-hmm. Galileo. Mm-hmm. And he knew this. The first thing he did was invite the Doge of Venice to the clock tower mm-hmm. in the city of Venice, the city-state of Venice, mm-hmm. and, and had him look out into the lagoon and declared, oh, by the way, look at how far away you can see your enemy. You know what flag they're flying under. How, what are their strengths? Gives you time to defend or to not as, as what is necessary. He, that, he, that, he made a sale of his telescopes. Then he went and looked at the universe mm. and then published his books, looking at the sun, moon, and stars. So, bada bing, right out of the box, right. uh, we have this relationship between the astronomer back then and the, and the astrophysicist. Oh, but um, Avis knew that in the famous painting of Washington crossing oh, the Delaware, right. yeah, you're anticipating where he's standing, oh, sorry. I'm, no, that's I'm, cool. Please. Um, his leg, his right leg is up, and he's the tallest one there, and everyone else. Uh, if you zoom in, yeah. in that painting... In his right hand, he's holding a telescope. Right. I can't say I remembered that, and um, I think that encapsulates the book beautifully, that image, mm-hmm. right and left, military and scientific. And he wrote of the value. It's not just uh, a, 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 an artistic convenience. Mm-hmm. He wrote because no one was there to photograph that moment. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so so, we so how do you believe. assemble this? You assemble it from the writings and from historical accounts yeah. of what happened, and uh, Washington had written articulately about the role and the value of the telescope to him mm-hmm. in his operations mm-hmm. as general. One of the things I love about this book is that there is so much uh, historical detail, and somebody had a 
both of you had a lot of fun putting all this together. Uh, I mean, we're we're in the chronicle, right? Uh, we could talk about chronos, time, it, time itself. Ooh, he's going. He's reaching for it. Measured <laughs> by oh, he's he's yeah. he's reaching in there. Measured right by a technique arrived at by um, yeah, the department. Yeah, we defense? my people. No? <laughs> when <laughs> I say my people, I'm talking about the whole history of astronomers and astrophysicists. Right. Uh, we we were basically the timekeepers. We established the measurement of time, uh, or people s- who cared about the sky and navigation. Yeah. Time is a fundamental dimension of this exercise. And uh, that's why going far enough back in the, the era of the great explorers, uh, who were early colonists, basically, the seafaring colonists, their power was measured by how well did you know the coastline of where you were going, and mm-hmm. can you return to that same spot, and where are the hostels, and where are the friendlies, and what are the trade winds, and and how f- far was that? Just how long does it take? Well, how many supplies? How much supplies do you need? All of this was enabled by a sky by sky fluent people, mm-hmm. because the coordinates on Earth are derived from the coordinates on the sky, your longitude and latitude, and where you are on Earth and what time it is. By measuring the sun, moon, and stars. What do you think a sextant does? It measures the sun, moon, and stars compared to tables to find out where you are on Earth. Mm-hmm. And and earlier than that, you had the 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 astrolabe, which was uh, primarily used by uh, the Muslims in the um, uh, and before right. you just during the period where um, the uh, the desert dwelling peoples who had unlimited access to the sky hmm. because when you're in the desert, there sure. are a few clouds. So yep. the sky mattered, hmm. navigating not just in the ocean, but even over land. Mm-hmm. So in fact, two-thirds of all stars in the night sky that have names hmm. have Arabic names, hmm. right? all right. traceable back to that you know, period. A lot of scientific terms as well. Yeah, yeah, algorithm. And fun uh, things like alcohol, uh, I think. Uh, alcohol, yeah, Al- oh. algorithm, um, alchemy. Uh, the, a lot of the AL, AL words, mm-hmm. which is a, basically a the mm-hmm. in Arabic. There's um, uh, algebra, mm-hmm. for example. That's an Arabic. Where my math stopped. Uh, <laughs> All so right. I, how, I, I won't ask you any. How about, <laughs> how about uh, the GPS itself? Can you, I mean, jumping ahead several. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Let's many, go ahead for millennia in the conversation. <laughs> I, ha- I wasn't even aware that there are other. Uh, Forms of global positioning systems. Well, in the, in well the world so is the Russians. So the GPS so is in a long tradition yeah. of the military wanting to know where they are, right. where they're headed, and where they came from, with very high precision. So before that, you had accurate chronometers and other methods and tools to find your way on Earth. Air Force said, if we put up a series of satellites that beam down positions of where they are relative to you, you can tr- basically triangulate. as a modern version of triangulating. Mm-hmm. And you know exactly where you are on Earth. Mm-hmm. And your longitude, your latitude, and your altitude, as well as what time it is for you. And so they set up the GPS satellites. But the signal was open to anyone who could receive them. And we soon learned that we could just f- find out where grandma's house is. I can write code that'll tap the GPS signal and do other things with it. And then the business side of this enterprise grew to the point where now, uh, you know, there are entire businesses that exist only because of GPS, such as Uber. Of Mm -hmm. course, GPS helped FedEx keep track of their trucks and Mm -hmm. know how long their drivers are 
on their coffee break mm -hmm. and other sinister <laughs> ways of probing your employees. There is that. <laughs> There's that. But uh, whole business models that only exist because you know where other people are relative to you. Mm. And uh, Uber is among them. And of course, so is uh, even Tinder. Okay, mm -hmm. you want to know who you want to mate tonight? <laughs> You're going to put a circle, <laughs> a mating circle, to find out where your people, mm -hmm. your your candidates mm -hmm. for that, um, will will be. So, uh, so this is just modern version of the astronomer on the boat, mm -hmm. helping you figure out where you are. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so the Air Force is actually putting up yet another generation of satellites that will be exclusive to them, and they'll just basically mostly or entirely seed the previous mm. um, set of satellites to uh, commerce. Mm. I'm going to go oh, back. By the way, Europe has its, that, Europe is building right. one. Every, no. So, because no, they don't want to be, no one else wants to be wholly dependent on us. Right. Well, some people use two systems, the, ours and the Russians. The Russians yeah. are better at mountains, apparently. Yeah, th yeah. so, uh, it's, well, plus they each use a model for Earth's surface. I mean, there are very subtle things going mm -hmm. on in this. Mm -hmm. For example... Uh, Earth's shape is not an exact sphere. Yep. So how do you move your longitude and latitude lines across something that is not a perfect a perfect spherical shape? Hmm. On your schoolroom globe, it's a perfect, so it's easy. Right. But as, as the shape of the Earth deviates from that of a perfect sphere, what kind of approximations are you making to correspond to where, where you are and what coordinates you will use by convention. Mm. So as long as everyone uses the same system, right. you'll all find each other perfectly. If you use two different systems, you might be off from one another. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's any time you look that closely into a problem, it's always more complicated mm. than mm. you think. And by the way, uh, you didn't ask this, but I'm handing it to you. Right? <laughs> Please. You ready? Are you ready? I am ready. No, you're not ready. For oh. This. Are, are you seated? Are there, you, I am now. You're I've been... <laughs> Hanging from the ceiling this whole time. <laughs> so, Einstein's general theory of relativity, among its many elements and predictions, establishes that if you are farther away from the source of gravity, your time will tick faster than those who are closer mm. to the source of gravity. Mm. Okay? It's very small, and most people, you don't have to care about this. But... The timekeeping precision of GPS satellites is so good that at their altitude, yeah. it their clocks tick more slowly at a measurable rate that affects what coordinates and time they then hand you. Damn. You could be off by 50 or 100 yards if they don't pre-correct mm -hmm. for Einstein's general theory of relativity so that their time, uh, time reckoning match it, from orbit, 500 miles up, matches mm. the time reckoning that we have on Earth's surface. Mm. Mm. Is pre-corrected so that we can all agree on what time it mm. is. More Einstein while we're at it. In the book, you quote his uh, phrase of, he doesn't know what, this is off the subject, but he doesn't know what world weapons World War III will be fought with, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. Yeah, it's a beautiful Paraphrasing quote. it, I mean, more or less. But it's tragically beautiful quote. Yes, right. Yeah. Which is also at the heart of this book. Um, more history in here. Uh, I loved reading about the uh, telegraphs. You know, down the street here, Telegraph Hill used to have a semaphore, these optical telegraphs. And I'm sure many books have been written about them. I haven't read them, but uh, 
the French invented them, right? And then there was a history of them being in the Civil War and yeah. then used against the Navajos in New Mexico. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a, it's a very rich, we spent a lot of time in the book talking hmm. about uh, signaling, basically, yeah. is what the telegraph is. It's a, it's a means of getting information from one place to another right. before cell phones. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like pre-internet. People yeah. talk Pre-internet. about Pre-internet. Just think, imagine As the that. first internet. Just imagine that. What, what I try to do is remind people that however primitive telegraphs look, yeah. they were extraordinary in their day relative to what preceded it. Hmm. So what matters is not how backward something looks, it's how forward it was right. compared to how anybody was trying to get that same task done at the time. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> we go into some detail about the Signal Corps. You know, you see the, these people w- waving flags up and down. Right, right, right. It's like, what are you doing? And why are you doing this? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm waving certain flags that my enemy doesn't know why they have this pattern on them. And I'm using my elbow and my shoulder um, to move these flags around in a way that you don't know what the code is. This is mm-hmm. early coded messaging. Mm-hmm. And... I want, you would stand on a mountaintop and someone would stand on a, another mountaintop where you could see one another and then signals would go back and forth and move th- through time and space mm-hmm. to affect your supply line, mm-hmm. your, your troop strengths, whatever you need on the front line. And then when you have a telescope, then you, not only can you read more intricate signals, you can read them from much farther away. Sure, sure. So you don't need someone on every mountaintop. They can be every other mountaintop yeah. or much even farther. And... The, the Signal Corps, at least in America, came of age in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And so, um, again, moving information across battle lines and back to supply lines is, became a fundamental part of the waging of war. Mm-hmm. The telescope transformed that. By the way, uh, let me just be clear. This book is about it focuses on astrophysics in the military. Mm-hmm. The role of other sciences in the military is well known and well written about. Right. I, I'm not claiming this to be comprehensive, mm-hmm. although one sentence summaries of this book might say the time-honored relationship between science and war. Mm-hmm. This is specifically people who study the universe, and that was a particularly interesting topic to me. Independent of me being an astrophysicist, the fact is we are peace-loving folk who mm. study the universe. Mm. And if I mention physics, you think of the bomb. If I mention chemistry, you think of napalm. Right. If I mention biologists, you think of weaponizing, you know, anthrax or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Right. It's clear how you would use those scientists in those roles. Mm. Talk about engineers. Give me a better catapult. All right. Mm. But the astronomer, what do we do? We, mm-hmm. we go to mountaintops and wait for photons to come to us. You can't get more scientifically humble than that. Right. And then I carry my detector to the coffee lounge and I compare my notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, did yours look like this? Mine looked like that. And you're not thinking how our expertise would ever be tapped mm-hmm. in the service of hegemony or mm-hmm. empire building mm-hmm. or, or warfare or defense. But it is and it has been and it will continue to be. So here's a sobering along those lines figure that you cite in your book, which is that astrophysics around the globe is funded at less than $3 billion a year, while global military spending is close to $1.7 trillion. How can that ratio ever change? Well, so, so uh, let, me, uh, let me back up yeah. just briefly, okay? Um, uh, this book, in part for me was sort of a coming of a, a step that, how should I put this? 
this book was a coming of age for me, mm. a coming of maturity, of mind, body, soul, and outlook. Mm-hmm. Okay? You can take a sort of liberal posture, a common liberal posture, which is war equals bad. Right. And science going to war is worse. Okay? And that's how I felt growing up. I grew up in New York City. My first awareness of the world was during the Vietnam War. And the pictures of dead servicemen every week and napalming villages. And, and there was no way you can spin it to me so that war would be something good. Mm-hmm. Or, even, or even something necessary. Mm-hmm. What's that song? Uh, war. What is it good for? Sure. Absolutely. It didn't say Vietnam War. <laughs> what is it good for? It says War. Capital W. Mm-hmm. A-R. So I had this cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. Visual cognitive dissonance. You walk around any town, you can find war memorials. Right. Some of them are just obelisks with names. Mm-hmm. Others have, have soldiers standing proud, proudly, burnishing wep- a weapon of their era, mm-hmm. a sword, a musket, a, um, a carbine. They're taking a hill. They're, they're astride a steed. These are proud sculptures. And I'm thinking... If war equals bad, Mm. why do any of these sculptures exist at all? Mm -hmm. What are you building a sculpture to? You're glorifying death, carnage, and destruction. This is my mental, I could not wrap my head around this at all, Mm. okay? I had to like, and I'm calling it maturity Mm. because I'm declaring in your face Mm. that if you were around in the Second World War, would you have said, oh, Hitler, let him go. That's fine. Not my problem. Mm-hmm. No, there are times when, yes, it's you need to stand up right. against uh-huh. forces that by most objective measures are evil uh-huh. or counter to what we value as civilization. The theory of just war. I, whatever you, that is. When I don't you know. go to war. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I didn't study the theory of just war, but I just looked for myself. Mm-hmm. And Tom Brokaw writes the book, The... the, 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 the Greatest generation. Greatest generation. These are people who saw evil in the world Mm -hmm. and did something about it at huge cost. Mm -hmm. Okay? So no longer, plus being in these meetings, talking about the security of the nation and what we care about. And there could be rogue elements. You don't have to agree with everything the military does. Mm -hmm. But to turn around and say, nope, we don't need any military. It'll never happen. It'll never be a problem. That is naive. And so I came to this understanding and this realization. Because what I just put my entire history of my field in judgment and say, you guys were clueless. You should have rejected every possible application of a military thing. That's, that's naive. Mm-hmm. Frankly, that's just naive. You don't, like I said, you don't have to agree with every use. But I can't, I, So the book is not passing judgment no. on whether we have had war or not. It is sharing the observation mm-hmm. of what role scientific astrophysical intellect and intellectual capital has played in this. And you don't say this overtly, but you do seem to favor the European approach, which is space research is all about, uh, it's non-military and its its goal is to share power, which is very different from the American 
mission, it seems, to say nothing of the Chinese. Well, it's more, it's, it's more passive than that. Hmm. So I highlight not that the military hires astrophysicists to make weapons, because mm-hmm. we don't know how to do that. Anyway, if we tried, we wouldn't be good at it. Yeah. What we do is we do what we do. And the military looks over the picket fence and said, hey, I like what you just did there. Right. Give me some of that. Why? Because I care about multispectral imaging of dim objects above my head. Okay? Oh, my, oh, the military cares about that too. Oh, my gosh. So they take it. Oh, by the way, what do they care about? They care about precise imaging mm-hmm. from orbit looking down on Earth. Hey, wait a minute. The telescope you use for that, if I turn it up into space... I can have a space-borne telescope. Mm-hmm. Thus was the birth of the Hubble telescope. Mm-hmm. That was not the first of its kind. Right. It, there were others. Project Keyhole. It was that telescope pointing down. And we said, give me some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had better articulation Phrasing at the that. Time. <laughs> that should be NASA's <laughs> motto. So, so it's not that we are in bed with one another. We're in separate beds. Yeah. Looking over each other's divider hmm. to see if one of these things can serve the other. Mm-hmm. And this is a chronicle. Cron. I get it. That's good. That's good. <laughs> you know that word? You've heard that word before? Yeah. <laughs> so this is a chronicle of that activity. Hmm. Uh, having said all that, you are, I mean, you do talk about the current president, who I think you mentioned as the current president. I looked I looked in the index, so there he is, Trump, and then I looked through to see if you actually named him. But you, you do name him at one point. Yeah. So yeah. you are... Critical. 60 million people voted for him. Yeah. So you right. are critical, nevertheless, of you know some of the saber-rattling that's going on, and uh, that gives you pause. Certainly. No, the critical of... Um, it's, it's not unique to any one administration or another. Mm-hmm. The people who, who will wield um, the fruits of science as a... As, as power rather than as, as, as a force of power rather than as a force of peace when you're not otherwise trying to defend yourself against an mm-hmm. enemy that's mm-hmm. knocking down your door. That, for me, feels like a, a misuse of the intellectual capital that we so mm-hmm. uh, desperately need to, to, uh, to prevent killing, mm-hmm. ultimately. So you've been on scientific committees and commissions, and it's been two years since... His election. What's the what's the feeling in the scientific community about him and his impact on the sciences? Do you find? Well, it's hard. Um, it's hard because often when you see the right from the liberal left, that there's a single stroke of paint that paints them that they're sort of anti-science, hmm. and it's not actually true. It's anti some things that are science. Most science they're not anti because many of them the. The, the ones in the inner circle know and understand the role and value of science innovation in driving the health and wealth of economies. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the, there's business interest in science investment, which accounts for the general bipartisan support that the National Fi- Science Foundation receives. Now you can slice that and say, oh, you, you're denying global warming. Yeah, that's tragic. That could be the unraveling of what we think of as modern civilization. That is scientifically ignorant and ultimately dangerous. Oh, by the way, insurance companies and the military are not ignoring the effects of human-caused global Mm -hmm. warming because insurance companies, it's their business model to know it and understand it, and the military also wants to know who gets destabilized in the next tsunami, Mm -hmm. what coastal city loses their property, Mm -hmm. and then you have 
refugees that will destabilize certain areas of the world that the military keeps track of. Mm -hmm. So no matter what else is going on in the rhetoric of the White House, the people who actually care and for whom it matters greatly do know and understand and are listening to scientists. Understood. Uh, so, so, so my point is, to, you can't brand. Um, there's anti-science in the left, by the way. The left right. doesn't like to think of itself that way. Hmm. Like to think of it as the science high road. Um, but you look at where anti-vaccine has its centers. It's among right. the left, not in the right. There's. I can give a list of things that are left-centered that require that you reject some or all mainstream science to do so. Hmm. And it would include crystal healers and feather energy and astrology hmm. readers and, hmm. and the, you, the, the list is You've been spending long. time in the Bay Area. Oh, the Bay. <laughs> so the difference, of course, is if I'm a crystal healer and I don't, uh, I, that doesn't affect the entire world, okay? I'm not gonna have legislation that forces everyone to be a crystal healer <laughs> if I'm a crystal healer. So the, the impacts are different, of course, but you can't just claim that you love science and you're in the middle of a world that has you know homeopathic uh, remedies with um, uh, uh, medicines diluted out of existence from the liquid because you think the liquid remembers that it once had medicine in it. This is, this to do, th by the way, we're a free country, go ahead and do it. Right. I'm not, I will not stop you, you're not gonna have me find me debating any of these people, okay? We're in a free country. Just don't rise to power over legislation <laughs> that involves <laughs> this. Meantime, there is a shrinking civilian workforce working on space science, and um, there are now fewer talented scientists coming in the from United abroad. States. Yeah. In the United States. That's something you do talk about. And yeah. is this a trend you see continuing beyond yeah, the current we're, administration? We're, because we're, we're uh, what's it, xenophobic? What's the one you're afraid of? Someone who's that, not like you? Yeah. yeah that would be yeah, the term. Somebody's not looking back through history. Hmm. Uh, it's something like a third of all Nobel Prizes in the sciences mm -hmm. ever hmm. won by Americans were won by immigrants to the United States. So they were born in some other country, came here, became a citizen, won a Nobel Prize. That is far in excess of the percent of immigrants who actually exist in the United States. Mm -hmm. First, so there's some ambiguity in how the term is used. Mm -hmm. When I say first generation, I mean those who were born somewhere else became citizens here. Right. That's what I mean by that might not be how everyone uses the term. Sometimes it's the next generation. But anyhow, people not born here are overrepresented in their contributions to the Nobel Prizes mm -hmm. and the sciences earned by Americans. The entire Manhattan Project had like three people who were born in the United States. All the rest mm. were foreign-born nationals who came here to work mm. on the atom bomb. Mm. The, our space program was birthed by Werner von Braun, right? You can't get more German than Werner von Braun, <laughs> okay, who invented the V2 rocket, all right, which terrorized London, uh, which was more terror than death toll, mm. but still, that was the birth of rockets. Mm. So, 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 and in modern times, to be so fearsome, of immigrants, I'm astonished. And uh, we we built the 21st century. We lay claim. Sorry, we lay claim to the 20th century. At least the second half of the 20. We right. invented the second half of the 20th century on the backbone of what was, if not mostly immigrants, significantly immigrants. Mm -hmm. And so to run around and say let's close the borders, okay, but uh, it is to our own 
Uh, it is not in the interest of our long-term health, wealth, or security. Yes. You recently tweeted. I think it might have been your last tweet. Oh, you do you read my tweet? You don't look like a tweeter guy. I'm on the I'm on the Twitter. <laughs> I do the Twitter. <laughs> you do the tweet thing. Well, you what? said you wrote since the universe has no center, you can't be it. <laughs> Boom. I didn't know that would go viral. Have you? It I was think very everything simple. you since the universe has no center, you. How long can't have you been be saving that one? It. So I do create more tweets in my head than the mm. rate at which I post them. Mm. So yeah, I do have a backlog. <laughs> I tweet like five tweets a week. I don't want to over spill it. Uh, I don't think tweets, think them up. I, they're just thoughts I'm already sure, having. Sure. I, and Twitter is a medium by which I share yes. these thoughts. So uh, no, that one was in the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, I was with some people and we had a conversation about self-centered people. And uh, I don't know. The observation was made that you don't know any. Okay, <laughs> what you're talking about? If the universe has no center, you can't be it. So I shaped that into a tweet, and then there it is, and it, it what took off. I, I was very surprised. Isn't everything on there that you write? Doesn't it have that ability? Isn't that taking off? But well, they all have the yeah. ability, but whether they do or not, I, I think. Uh, what pulse are you tap? What vein are you tapping right. into? You also host the podcast, Star Talk, and all that spare time. I'm sure you have. Uh, <laughs> If you could have one dream guest on the show, who would it be? Oh, so uh, I would get Obama, President Obama. Mm. Obama and then Trump. Uh, either as I a sitting wondered. president or when he comes out of office. Mm. I like people who are sort of heads of things because they have power beyond their physical human. Uh, you're just human, but now you're in power. So now mm. you're a powerful human. So I, I'd like talking to people like that. And I'm sure you've tried. Your people have oh, tried. Oh, we tried. We, I, tried I tried Trump when he was a candidate. Mm. And, but that, that didn't work out. And I just like knowing how people's brains work. So President Obama went to the comedian, what's his name, in his garage, but he didn't go visit you? Yeah, you? that's okay. And plus, I, I, I did note that in his Twitter account, he follows like, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. I'm not one of them. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what, I don't take it personally. He's president. He, he can do what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping, sir, that you can do a little reading for us to close out, and it's just oh. a few paragraphs here. Oh, Is I, it, that's a I was saying this copy, this book. Oh, creaky, oh. creaky. Yeah, let me get my my reading glasses, my old people glasses. On the left. On the left. In your oh. basso profundo. Basso. <laughs> I only learned about basso profundo recently. Really? Oh yeah. Whoa! Founding member of basso profundo. That's like We're going to run with the that. people. <laughs> Koyan, Scotsy. <laughs> oh, good move. Where you like can hear, you can hear each vibration of the vocal yeah. cord. It doesn't make a note. It just makes vibrations. So you can read a little lower than your normal mm -hmm. tone here for this. Okay. Uh, let me say, what, what part are we reading? So th these are three paragraphs here. Okay, here we go. The page. Back in 1935, power was less powerful than it is today. It had fewer weapons at its disposal. It could do less damage. Today, we have both megalomaniacs and mega-weapons. We have elected officials who invoke the pro-armaments motto, peace through strength, and talk about not taking any cards off the table. Fortunately, we also have spacefarers from many nations living, talking, and investigating biology and chemistry and medical research and astrophysics cheek by jowl on the International Space Station for months at a time. A test case for peace through, co through cohabitation and collaboration. 
The space station is their little world. Unlike their mobile contemporaries down here on Earth, they can't up and leave at a moment's notice. And when spacefarers look at Earth, the separate countries of the schoolroom globe are nowhere to be found. All they see are blue oceans, green and tan landmasses, and the white of cloud tops and glaciers. One world, indivisible. Humanity's only home thus far. Some of us may be waiting for the chance to colonize Mars. Not happening tomorrow. In the meantime, maybe we could try pretending we're astronauts. Because, in fact, considered in terms of the galaxy, not to mention the universe, we are. Beautiful. Thank you for that. And thanks Ooh. for coming. Uh, we'll see you next year for your next book. Oh, no. <laughs> I th- how, I, how fast do you want to uh. pump these things out? <laughs> well done. No, thank you for your interest. And, um, and yeah, keep uh, chronicling. I will. <laughs> we will. <laughs> All right. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest today, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Our producer today is Peter Hartlob. Executive producer is Fernando Diaz, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Mozart's Symphony 40 in G minor by Blue Dot Sessions. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts. Thank you.